0: Crawford also well. before we go we've been nominated for an award. We have been nominated
1: for an award. <laughs> um go <laughs> go vote for us in the gossies he says looking in the barrel of the camera very very seriously. No please do and we're very grateful to be uh, nominated for that.
0: That's a great there's loads of good great, great category. Could be good at good on my
1: Hello and you're very welcome to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. I am political correspondent Gavin Riley, joined in studio by news correspondent Zara King. Zara hello, hello, how are you? And two's company, but three is a group chat. Welcome back, <laughs> news correspondent Richard Chambers. How hello. are you?
2: Good. Uh, you're still off the day job, but you've been out of the country for a couple of weeks. How yeah, was it? That commitment to the group chat is, is is coming in despite being on holidays. But look, yeah, and that's been great. Really good. Uh, good to get away all that sort of stuff. But the
0: Instagram posts were very like, it was very uh, relaxed.
2: Judy calls, though, you know, I I needed to have my foot back in the news. Have you saved a highlight,
0: by the way? Can people go watch a highlight of that?
2: Of the Isle of Skye, which I would recommend. It's like Ireland and Norway had a baby. Um, it's beautiful <laughs> very very beautiful uh, it's up there somewhere you'll find it. Okay. Of... Uh, no I don't like more like people at this now but but,
1: people like us have find it very difficult to detach but when you're away and you're somewhere as, as kind of Baron and I said is that do you still follow the news a bit or do you totally just d- disconnect
2: a bit but you do want to get away from it that was the whole point of booking yeah. Mm. A lot of time off from overtime that you had from you know previous yes. previous uh, you know excursions and mm. expeditions and whatnot, but you need to have it somewhat of an eye of it because obviously mm. you're interested in it anyway. Yeah. Like, we wouldn't be here and doing this podcast if we weren't interested. Totally. In well, there you but. go. Uh,
1: well, obviously one of the biggest stories since the last time you were in was the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, which unfortunately is is, a, is something which has a death toll continuing to mount. The UN now estimating that as many as fifty thousand people may have lost their lives in those terrible earthquakes early on Monday of last week. Uh, one person who is just back in Istanbul from covering all of that on the ground is Sky News correspondent Alex Crawford, who we're delighted is with us this week. Um, Alex, thank you for joining us on the group chat. You might just start by reflecting on what you've seen in the last nine or 10 days.
3: Well, I've not seen anything like it before. It is truly horrendous, a huge amount of devastation and destruction, um, the like of which is quite difficult to even show or capture on cameras or to articulate because it's not just one street. It's like whole cities, whole towns, whole, entire communities, over hundreds of kilometers. Uh, and that they are effectively now cemeteries. They're, they're huge, big piles of rubble and buildings with hundreds, possibly thousands more people still underneath. Um, it's, it's just one large cemetery. And it, it's, it's very hard to actually get the scale of it over to you Because it's, I mean, for instance, I was just in one small area, Hatay, next to the Syrian border. Uh, uh, um, I went there straight away because that was the area that I felt was going to be one of the worst affected. It was either going to the epicenter, Karaman or down south, further south um, in Turkey in Hatay, which was an area which I felt might have been slightly ignored or not looked after quite as well as the the epicenter and it took us in some cases five hours to go to and from the area in Hapai which was worst affected and that is just one small area which is affected in the whole of of the Turkish earthquake zone as well as of of course across the border in Syria so we're talking about a huge amount of destruction a quite ginormous amount of, of destruction Um, So it's not just people, it's not just the immediate deaths, it's the aftermath as well, um, because it's now moved very much into a a search and recovery um, operation rather than search and rescue. They are still remarkably pulling out people alive, but they're becoming fewer and fewer. And now it's just the hunt for corpses, if you can get to them, and also trying to cope with the large number of people have been displaced, extra large number of people have been displaced and especially across the border in Syria, you know, people who have already been through 12 years of of war, already displaced, many of them multiple times and the struggle to get aid to them.
0: I was going to ask you about that, Alex, because obviously the response between uh, Turkey and Syria has been quite different. What are the real challenges for people, particularly in Syria?
3: I mean, in Syria, you're talking about people who were extremely vulnerable already. 12 years of war, even on the morning of the earthquake, there were still um, fighter jets going over airplanes, bombing jets going over the earthquake area. Um, So these are people who've been through an awful lot. Uh, I personally have spoken to um, displaced people in Syria who've run away from the bombing and sheltering and been displaced from their homes eight ten a dozen times running from bombing the, so you imagine that situation you know you're constantly moving from place to place living rough on top of that you've got very fragile infrastructure so poor medical facilities fear of of, of running away from constant uh, fighting shooting and shelling and then you have an earth, a natural disaster the biggest in this area in in a century and again, you're frightened. So even people who've managed to, many of the displaced people who would managed to get to some sort of safety, many of them went over to Turkey to safety. Turkey uh, has been playing host to more than 4 million people who ran from the Syrian war. And many of them are dead. When I went over to Northwest Syria to the, the last opposition controlled territory, a small enclave, which is held by militant rebels, gunmen, uh, the only thing that was going over were bodies. And there were hundreds of them, dead Syrians who were being returned back to, to Syria, back to, the, to their families, on top of the people who'd, who had died in the earthquake anyway. So they, they had and the contrast between the two countries was ginormous because there were hundreds of countries helping Turkey by the end of the week. The first week since the disaster there were the the air was thick with the sound of sirens the The roads were clogged with volunteers military police people rushing to the scene to try and help uh, across the border in in northwest Syria, where I was in the, the rebel controlled area it, it was silent apart from the odd digger that was trying to sift through rubble and um and just miles and miles of rubble and just the white helmets, the civil defence uh, outfit that uh, was so used to pulling people out of bombed houses and, and shelled areas, now trying to find and recover corpses. What's the
2: outlook then for for those parts of Syria which have been so you know, devastated for so many years, as you say, obviously these situations can turn from the immediate and the recovery stage into then a humanitarian situation if there isn't enough aid or resources put into these areas. Is that a concern then that these places which haven't seen any immediate assistance, that they're going to effectively be living with this for a very, very long time?
3: No, I mean, undoubtedly they will be. This is going to have an impact for decades, maybe generations. I think just to just to remind your listeners that it took more than a week for the politics to be sorted out and for aid to actually cross into Syria. Today, I've just, just been hearing from my Syrian, Syrian colleagues that they did have 22 United Nations trucks crossed today and 52 other trucks from um, smaller humanitarian outfits crossed over. Let's look at what's been happening, though, and how long it's taken for that aid, which is actually very small, very, very small, given that there are over there are millions of people in desperate need in in Syria. And it's a patchwork. The country is a patchwork of, of different groups holding it. So you have the regime uh, holding certain areas, led by Bashar al-Assad. You've got uh, Kurdish-controlled areas. You've got Turkish-controlled areas where the Turkish military has moved over and taken certain areas. And then you've got this opposition-controlled area where many people fled, who opposed Bashar al-Assad's regime, fled there to safety, and that's held by a militant jihadist group, for simplicity's sake, we'll call them HTS. So it is monumentally difficult. There's been, up until today, just one crossing open in Bab al awa They've opened two other crossings further up in the Turkish-controlled area, But clearly that has had, that will have had an immediate dramatic effect on whether people were saved, whether they could have been, how many more people could have been rescued alive. And the the delay in getting the aid to them has meant that um, even those who were pulled out miraculously by the white helmets were often taken to get medical help and then died after that. Um, On top of that, you've got um, a very out of control, anarchic area where gunmen are in control. I mean, the, you, you remember the story of the little baby who was still attached by her, her umbilical cord to her mother. Her mother died, but they managed to pull the baby out. They named her Aya. We've had gunmen storming that hospital um, where Aya was. Um, some sort of, again, more politics. There is always politics at play. Um, I'm, I have no, no understanding of why the gunmen stormed that hospital, but they did. And this is what the humanitarian aid effort is coming up against as well.
1: Um, I was really struck by one thing you said um, when you started speaking to us a few minutes ago, Alex, that you've never seen anything like what you've seen uh, in the last 10 days. And that, uh, if you don't mind it saying so, is it, saying something given the scale of what you've seen, the various places that you've been as a special correspondent for Sky News over the last number of years. You've been to different war zones, to uprisings, to natural disasters. The fact that this jumps out as something that you've never seen the likes of before is really saying something. Um, how do you manage to, to detach your own personal reaction as a human when, when you're going to situations like this and you are required by the nature of your job to, to be dispassionate and to try and, and capture factually what you're seeing on the ground?
3: Well, I think it's very hard to, to draw the line and to, to not feel some something. And actually, I don't want ever to get to that stage where I don't feel anything. Um, I want to be able to feel it because if I'm not feeling that and seeing such destruction and disaster and tragedy on such a huge scale, I think I've probably turned into a robot by that stage. So I never, ever want to get to that, to that point. I, I, I think to be able to report, well, you have to understand, have some sort of empathy of what people are going through, um, because otherwise you have lost all sense of humanity. Um, you have to be able to sense when people are angry, when they're really upset, Uh, And when there are injustices, and uh, certainly I found, um, first of all, in Hattai, an area, you know, when we first arrived, there weren't even any journalists there. There was no one there, uh, apart from the locals, um, who were desperately trying to sometimes uncover their their loved ones and their nearest and dearest using their bare hands. There was no help whatsoever. And that was in Hattai, because it's an area which has got a big influx of Syrian refugees. It's run by a mayor who represents a Turkish opposition party. And they were, there were mistakes. The Turkish president has already admitted there were mistakes on day one. By day two, there was a lot of effort and focus going in, and, and, but there was no coordination. And I mean, you could say that no country could be terribly well prepared for a, a disaster on this scale. That's true, but Turkey has is, is well known for ever since I've lived here, and I've lived here for four years. The first thing that I came when I got my house was the landlady telling me, don't worry, I've made it earthquake proof, because this is an area that is well known for being prone to earthquakes. Um, so there were undoubtedly a number of mistakes. On top of that, you've got um, politics, you know, politics between Turkey and Syria. Um, politics between Bashar al-Assad, who controls the regime area, and the opposition. There were lots of accusations from people on the ground in northwest Syria around Idlib who were saying that uh, you know the UN was insistent on all the aid going, and Bashar al-Assad was insistent on all the aid going through the regime. That meant that the opposition-controlled areas and other areas, which they're all fighting over, was not going to get access to, to the aid and hasn't got access to m- much of the aid that's been distributed during the Civil War. So there are lots of politics going on here. And, you know, even if you're a reporter and meant to be dispassionate and impartial, also the role of the reporter and the journalist is to highlight when politics and when uh, things could be done better. And definitely there was that in bucket loads over the last week. Just on that point,
2: Alex, um, I was reading just in the Guardian this morning by the former Turkey correspondent Constance Lech, her her column, which was uh, headlined "An Act of God Caused the Earthquake in Turkey, but Murderous Corruption Caused So Many Deaths." And there's been other reporting today about a video being unearthed of Erdogan, uh, one of the most you know deep-rooted political leaders anywhere in the world, a strongman as we t- describe him here in Europe of him potentially bragging previously about the loosening of building regulations, which would allow uh, buildings to go up without as much earthquake proofing. For for a figurehead and a leader who has such a strong position, is there likely to be backlash which could actually threaten him in this? Is there likely to be that outpouring of anger of the likes we haven't seen against him to date in Turkey?
3: Definitely. I think he faces a really tough battle. Um, he's got upcoming elections uh, which were due to be in the next few months, he's already introduced a state of emergency, which many people feel uh, he's using the earthquake and the disaster as a way of um, giving himself more time, because this was going to be one of the closely contested, one of the most closely contested elections that he was going to face as a leader. He's uh, not only is there a global economic meltdown, but um, Turkey itself has had a lot of economic problems in the last few months, not just because of the the global State, but also because of COVID and also his questionable economic policies, which have seen inflation rise. In December, it was nearly 100%. It's now gone down a little bit to 60, 70%. That's meant a huge rise in the cost of living for ordinary Turks. Uh, He's he's a man who's very Marmite. Some people absolutely love him, many more don't. He's got a questionable human rights. Uh, record where he's arrested a lot of journalists who he feels he deems as traitorous who are far too he feels are too negative towards him and his party and uh, you know that has extended to arresting doctors who criticized him uh, lawyers so he's a man who clearly has a very thin political skin and he um, answers these critics by arresting them
0: Alex, just finally, before we let you go, just to let our listeners know that they can follow some of your work on Instagram, particularly a lot of our listeners are on Instagram at alex.crawfordsky. It is there that you've been sharing some of your reports and packages and some incredible pictures uh, from the front line of of many things that you've worked on. We can't let you go without asking you a little bit about your time in Ukraine because, of course, uh, the war is ongoing there. Uh, Again, you spent a lot of time in Ukraine uh, last year. I Where do you think we're at with that now and where do you see things going?
3: Yeah, I spent most of the time in Ukraine last year. It was a um, pretty difficult year between Ukraine and Afghanistan. Um, Ukraine is a really long war of attrition, where um, the Russian leader doesn't seem ready to give up, despite uh, so much so much being ranged against him. He's he's not one to give up. His character is not is not of that ilk and he's uh, as we saw in the way he dealt with Syria, you know, and, and, uh, um, supporting Bashar al-Assad, it's, it's a constant drip drip of shelling and bombing. And he doesn't seem to care about the amount of destruction or the deaths. So he basically leveled Aleppo. Um, you know, I, I went to a hospital once in Aleppo, um, and it had been hit six times, six times, and they were all operating underneath in the basement. Now that's under Bashar al-Assad's control, largely because of the support he's received from Russian jets. And he seems to be using the same approach in Ukraine. He's, he feels, it seems to me, he's in for the long term and he's waiting for Europe and the West to tire of this particular to particular war like unfortunately, like they did with Syria, and gradually you know, you know Bashar al Assad, for instance, the man who, who's simply there because of the support from from Russia largely, is now back in contention, you know back to to talking to to world leaders and almost about to be accepted onto the world stage, even you know back behind the scenes talks with the Turkish president and others and unfortunately i think that may be the long-term plan as far as ukraine's concerned as well just wear everyone down cause huge amount of destruction and that is exactly what's happening you know going through towns and villages in ukraine some of the destruction you use you, you it's a pyrrhic victory in in many respects short term because there's so much destruction just piles and piles of destruction and russian russian soldiers bodies lying everywhere in the towns where the the ukrainians managed to gain some ground and you you think well wow what are, what are, what are they fighting for because the, the the land that, that they're going to take over is destroyed anyway and that was what aleppo was like when they finally took it it was leveled
1: um Alex, you've been really generous with your time and your insights. Thanks so much for joining us again. Just before we let you go, just one issue that does arise from what's been going on around the earthquake-stricken region, which is when you've uh, removed and displaced so many people who have been displaced so many times already, um, it does beg a question as to whether we're going to have to see in the rest of Europe some of the same hospitality that we've seen after the outbreak of war in Ukraine, where there'll be so many millions of people who will simply have nowhere else to go and who really need to be dispersed across Europe to find any kind of shelter.
3: I think there's there's a real knock on impact. Um we had the the Taliban taking over in Afghanistan and you remember that huge big evacuation where they took out thousands of people and they they since then it's uh, Ukraine Russia war has happened and the now the amount of doors opening to Afghans has really gone considerably smaller, really really small in fact Ireland's been one of the few that's still trying to 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 help Afghans. It was they were they were eclipsed by Ukrainians, and now we're going to we're going to see so many millions of Syrians who again need help. And I wonder what the impact is is going to be. It's very much dependent on on Europe and other countries, um, you know, being being generous with their time and their space and 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 their visas. And I think there, unfortunately, there's a real world wariness and very, a number of leaders who are not, who are running governments who are not uh, very sympathetic to, to other people's problems. When everyone is going through a, a big global economic issue, challenges, massive challenges economically, you find that the visas and the humanity and the help and the hand of friendship extended to people who've lost their homes from. You know, relatively long distance away, that tends to be withdrawn. So I don't think the future for Syrians or even Turkish people who've lost their their um, homes, I, I I can't see I can't see many countries really really helping. I mean, look at the amount of money that, for instance, UK has given to to uh, Turkey in comparison to the amount of money spent on war weaponry for Ukraine. It's absolutely eclipsed by the amount of money spent on war in Ukraine.
1: Um, It's a sobering note to end on, but we must end because you've been so generous with your time. Thank you again for joining us uh, on the group chat this week. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Unfortunately, under pretty sad circumstances, but it's been great to be able to benefit from your insight. Alex Crawford, special correspondent with Sky News. Thank you so much for joining us on the group chat this week.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for asking me.
1: Welcome back to the group chat. Now, next week, 24th of February, marks the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, an invasion and an ongoing war which has resulted in not alone consequences for that country, but of course for the rest of Europe. There are around now 80,000 Ukrainians living in Ireland. Around three quarters of those are being directly accommodated by the state one way or another. On top of that, there are around 20,000 applicants for international protection also being accommodated by the state. That has caused big concerns for the state and big acute pressures in accommodation. We're delighted to say that the Minister Minister for Integration, Roderick Gorman, uh, joins us now from Leinster House. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us this week on the group chat. Uh, Before we get into the nitty-gritty, what do you make of some of the demonstrations and protests that we've seen around the country from communities who have concerns around uh, new centres being created there to accommodate Ukrainians and others?
4: Thanks, um I think we have to recognise that uh, people are entitled to disagree with government decisions and if a government decision is to locate uh, international protection or, or UK- Ukrainian accommodation in an area, they have a right to protest, they have a right to, to disagree. But I think we have to look at the uh, I suppose, the overall scope of some of the instances over the last number of, uh, of weeks and some of them go far beyond protest. And some of them have clearly been, uh, I suppose, generated or um, promoted. Online by by uh, sources online that are, are, are looking to promote explicitly, I suppose, racist uh, motivations. We've seen attacks on um, on on healthcare professionals, on, on non-Irish healthcare professionals over the last number of weeks. We've seen attacks on non-Irish students over the last number of weeks. So I think it's important that uh, we don't conflate uh, le- legitimate disagreement with government protest over some of the very uh, some of the very nasty, some of the very hate-filled rhetoric and hate-filled actions that have taken place as well. And just one last point, I think it's also important to remember that while those protests have been going on, all over Ireland there are communities who are welcoming uh, new arrivals be they from Ukraine, be they in the international protection, there are friends of direct provision centres there are, you know, towns as welcome happening all over Ireland as well and that's continuing to happen and in areas that's grown even more so uh, since uh, as a response to some of the more negative rhetoric that we've seen.
1: You mentioned the distinction between legitimate anti-government protest and other uh, more racially motivated um, concerns. Uh, to what degree are protests legitimate is it legitimate for example for communities to have some concern that they don't already have the civic resources they don't have enough uh, school spaces gps and the like to cater to the existing population let alone uh, more coming in is that a legitimate concern
4: I I think uh, communities are are entitled to to, to raise issues uh, and and raise them in a traditional way, whether it's engaging with their local representatives, whether it's it's making a a protest. Those those sort of actions are are, are legitimate. Uh, I, I I will also point to the fact that the government are acting to address those concerns where we can. But I do make the point that nobody in any community has a right of veto in terms of who lives with them. And no more than I can make a determination about who my next door neighbor is none of us can make an overall determination and we have to recognize that the state is responding to an unprecedented emergency the consequences of a war on the European continent uh, a situation none of us uh, uh, ever thought we'd face and in that circumstance uh, there is an impact on all of us Uh, there's an impact on on every community across the country in terms of the consequences of of of, of this war and the subsequent migration crisis across Europe and that's something we, we have to work together to, to, to navigate
3: through.
0: Minister, uh, in the last couple of weeks, obviously, your department has sent out signals that uh, Ireland is very much struggling in terms of accommodation, particularly for those coming seeking international protection. There has been a different setup, obviously, for people coming from Ukraine, but there's been criticism of the government, particularly by uh, migrant rights groups, about how Ukrainian uh, refugees are being treated differently to those coming from other countries. How did it come to that, and why was that decision made?
4: Well, first of all, the uh, treatment of uh, Ukrainian displaced persons is set out at EU level through the Temporary Protection Directive. And we're applying that, uh, and uh, you're correct, there is a difference in treatment. The Temporary Protection Directive is, is a temporary measure. It, it, it's imply, uh, applied for a, a year initially. We all expect it will be applied for a longer, uh, For, for, for it will be extended for an additional year at least. But our immediate uh, actions that we take in terms of, of the accommodation of Ukrainians is dictated to us by the Temporary Protection Directive, as it is for every EU member state. On the other side, in terms of our procurement of accommodation, in terms of getting uh, beds, in terms of getting accommodation for Ukrainians and international protection applicants... I've indicated previously that it is harder to get accommodation for international protection applicants. Uh, The private sector, and as we know, we've had to rely substantially on the private uh, sector uh, in terms of serviced accommodation, in terms of hotels and guest houses. We've had to rely on that in Ireland because we have the existing uh, housing crisis and we have found it more difficult to secure accommodation for international protection applicants through that process uh, th- th- than it is for Ukrainians. And ultimately, where you're contracting with a, a B&B, where you're contracting with a guest house, the department has to, you know, the-, the-, the, de- the department, if it wants to get the accommodation, it has to accede to the, the views of the, the private uh, vendor.
2: Do you agree with that directive, Minister, that it should be, you know, that there is a priority there for Ukrainians? Do you agree with that? Do you think that's
4: morally right? Because some migrants' rights groups say that is plain racist. Well, first of all, we're 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 providing uh, uh, shelter and safety in Ireland for everybody through those applying for both Ukraine and India, the the international protection process. Right now, as you know, we have a real difficulty in securing uh, adequate accommodation for those in the international protection process. That's not something I I want to see happen. That's not something the government wants to see happening. And that's why we're acting to try and and, 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 uh, secure additional accommodation. That's not going
3: very well, though, Minister, is it? I mean, you,
2: you you wrote to your government colleagues. They haven't come back with anything tangible. Is that acceptable? I mean, that was a number of weeks ago that you wrote that letter, and for none of the departments and their agencies to come back with anything on a decent scale is pretty damning, isn't it? This isn't a good job the government is making of this.
4: Well, first of all, it's it's not right to say no one's come back with anything. We've secured uh, accommodation through the Department of Defence in a former barracks, and the Department of Defence are working with us now to secure additional uh, emergency accommodation in another barracks. But you are right in saying government has to do more. All of us have to do more across government, across the state, to make sure we're not in a situation where people in the international protection process where we're not able to offer them accommodation. You do have to look at this in context. We are, and we are as as, as, as Gavin spoke to earlier on, we're in the context we, where we, as a state, are accommodating 75,000 people, where this time last year we were accommodating 7,500. That's a massive increase in scale. That increase in scale in terms of the provision of emergency accommodation has never been undertaken before in the history of the state. But I understand that's of no um, that's of no comfort to somebody who today we're unable to, to uh, provide accommodation for and that's why my department and all of us across the government have to do more to make sure we can secure that additional accommodation.
0: And Minister, crucially, you know, when you talk about shelter and safety and you talk about not being able to provide accommodation to people coming, you know, to Mound Street, arriving, getting a food voucher or whatever, and not having somewhere to sleep for the night. When you talk about safety, are you keeping tabs on these people and ensuring that they are safe wherever they are? I mean, is there any sort of measure to make sure that these people are are having at least, you know, somewhere to, to sleep or keeping tabs on them at all, or are they just being sort of cast out into the cold literally? once they arrive
4: here. Well, we've taken contact details for everybody who has arrived who were not in a position to provide uh, accommodation for immediately. And over the course of the last three weeks, we have been able to uh, re-offer accommodation to over uh, 120 people who initially we weren't able to provide accommodation for, but we were subsequently able to get them back into the accommodation system when uh, when, uh, uh, beds, when when accommodation became available. So we are keeping in touch with people uh, and we will look to bring everybody back but that is dependent on the ongoing work to secure more accommodation
0: minister the virgin media has conducted a red sea poll just in relation to attitudes towards this situation and some of the respondents just 56 percent of respondents agree that the protests outside refugee and asylum seeker accommodation centers are not justified that's only 56 percent what do you make of that that figure would you have hoped that there would have been greater support for, for people within those communities
4: well, I, I haven't seen that poll, and I haven't seen the, the, the specific question asked. Um, but what I would say is, and you know, I'm out and about myself in my own constituency, talking to people, get, getting their sense, and, and have been uh, for, for uh, all year. And I do believe people in Ireland recognise that we have uh, a, an obligation. I think we have a legal obligation. We've spoken about that earlier on, but I think we also have a moral obligation in responding to both both the uh, the, the consequences of the war in ukraine but also the consequences of other wars and i think because maybe the suffering of the people of uh, afghanistan following the taliban takeover or the suffering of the people of syria in terms of the, the ongoing civil war there i think maybe because they're not the the the, the top line uh, news item anymore you know sometimes people have busy lives people forget the fact that there are uh, People fleeing wars, fleeing brutal dictatorships uh, a, a, across the Middle East, a, across North Africa. And it is those people who are who are uh, 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 arriving into the international protection process. Uh,
1: and just on that final note, Minister, when you mentioned people coming from other regions, are we likely to see the prospect of people who have been displaced by the earthquake in Syria and Turkey needing to be accommodated in countries like us?
4: Well, uh, uh, in terms of being able to uh, apply under international protection, that is someone fleeing war, fleeing conflict, fleeing uh, persecution rather than fleeing a natural disaster. But what I will say is Ireland has and continues to uh, uh, accommodate Syrian refugees through the Irish Refugee Protection Programme. Uh, A number, uh, a a, a couple of hundred Syrian refugees would have been uh, accommodated over each of the last uh, three years. Uh, We primarily take... Uh, refugees from refugee camps in Lebanon and in uh, Jordan and our department is looking to, to continue to support uh, I suppose those countries who are bearing the immediate brunt of the uh, of the Syrian civil war and have been for almost a decade now.
1: Okay uh, Minister we know you're on a tight schedule and you need to get on to another engagement so we'll let you go. Thank you very much for joining us on the group chat this week. That's the Minister for Integration, Roger Gorman.
4: Thanks very much.
0: So listening to the minister there, it doesn't seem to appear that despite what Alex Crawford is saying about countries needing to maybe step up and help those uh, in the earthquake disaster that Ireland will be taking any um, yeah. displaced people from Turkey.
1: It, it kind of sounds like the classic gap between what is maybe sort of morally justified or just practically warranted and then what's politically feasible, that mm-hmm. there's always that gap between making the law or the systems fit around what the needs are. Um, but yeah, like it's, it sounds like that the, the attitude is, well, unless you've been displaced by some sort of war, that the system isn't really open to making those sorts of applications, which is well, it's understandable from a legal perspective and maybe given some of the sentiments that we found in, in the, the Red Sea poll that mm. maybe there wouldn't be as much public generosity for people coming from that part of the world, which is telling in its own right, given the destruction that they've just witnessed in their homeland.
0: And Richard, he said to you, he conceded to you there that the government needs to do better on this. I mean, he was pretty blunt and pretty honest about that. But saying it is, it, actually, saying it is one thing, but...
2: It is it is interesting now that that's almost coming to the surface, because within Roderick O'Gorman's department, and it has been for maybe a month or so, maybe a month to two months, there's a deep level of frustration there mm. about what other departments are doing to provide for this situation. Or not doing. And exactly, not doing is actually what they would say. Uh, I think that's very interesting. That's going to be something to watch over the next number of weeks because the government wants to put in more larger scale camp bed accommodation centres. I mm. mean, now how many ones are we talking about there'll be a second transit hub to go alongside City West? How We've been talking happens. about that for at least eight, uh, eight uh, months, at, at least eight months, At least eight months, months yeah. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was um, one identified in the north side of
1: Dublin, about, uh, north of Liffey, and it still has yet to materialise.
2: Mm. They can't do it. Mm. They can't do it. And that's why I asked the question, is like the government isn't making a good job of this mm. uh, because by whatever measures they have, it probably isn't.
1: Yeah, um, I do remember hearing from someone else involved in government in response to that, that letter being sent around by Roderick Rowan a few weeks ago, um, that what did they really expect us to be able to come back with? Because mm. if you just look at the departments that are there, like the departments of finance and public expenditure don't have much they can do. The Department of Culture and Arts and Tourism, it has the National Concert Hall and not much else, You like mass cultural venues that aren't really suitable to be handed over. And then if you go through all the other departments, you're basically left with education are there like school holds you could take certainly certainly not within Mm -hmm. term time maybe during the summer Uh,
0: and,
1: and the other one then is the Department of Housing which is responsible for local government and that has enough own, concerns own own going on problems.
0: already, you know. I was working on this story, I think it was the week before last and like that doing a ring around to like, the likes of the GAA and stuff like that. And, you know, yeah. who owns the local hall, like the GA and the, and the Catholic Church? And really the feedback was that, you know, where they can, they're already helping. Certainly they've stepped up already, but also that particularly for the sports, say the GAA with with the season now, that mm. the, everything. I think this, the idea, what the feedback I got from a lot of these places was the idea that a hall would be lying idle is really just not the case, you Yeah, know, that there isn't an idle hall Slightly available. Just yeah. in relation to Alex Crawford, really thought her insights were very interesting. Um, mm. Like open disclosure, Alex Crawford would be an absolute idol of mine. So I think I was, I'm glad I held it together and we didn't so much afterwards. But I just think that the work that she's doing is really incredible. But particularly her insights, Richard, when you were asking her um, about, you know, just even or I think with Gavin as editor, just about the the whole prospect of maybe trying to cover these stories and not get too sort of emotionally invested and actually Alex has kind of echoed what a lot of us have said around the table here on the podcast many times is that Mm. you have to continue to care and you have to continue to have empathy to do a really good job on those stories. Yeah, because
1: ultimately if you're there as a representative of the viewer who can't be there themselves that it's your job to, to impart all of that and... I suppose when I put the question, what I meant was like, how do you basically not become too overwhelmed? How Mm. do you still manage to sort of keep enough professional bones together to be able to to perform the functions of the job and get the material out? Because to be honest, often I I haven't known how Alex has been able to do it, given some of the stuff that she witnessed. But given everything that she's seen in all the various war zones and uprisings and disasters that she's seen, for her to say that that is the most striking thing that she's seen. It says a lot. It really does say a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I did. Yeah, I f- found that quite interesting. That is something which is almost like a, it's, it's quite a common answer. For, you know, different journalists that they're mm-hmm. like, well, we don't don't turn into an android, don't turn into a robot about things. Um, but even the insight that she has into, you know, what's going to happen in Turkey as a result of this, mm. that's going to be something to watch a lot of. It's like the political situation in Syria, we know enough about how, you know, chaotic that is going to be, but Turkey as well is going to be something to watch really closely over the next while.
1: Uh, Zara, I wanted to make a few minutes to talk about something that you were uh, covering this week, uh, especially with the week that was in it with Valentine's Day. You were covering a piece on Tuesday's news about um, the, I don't, don't even really know how to kind of describe it overall. It was more semi about the kind of the state of modern relationships among young people, mm-hmm. but also some of the the threats that some people, particularly young women, feel about yeah getting out of relationships that they're not happy. And tell us a bit more about it because I was quite unsettled by all of this.
0: Yeah, and it was the findings were actually kind of really like shocking in a sense. That, so it's the two into you campaign by Women's Aid. Eh? People may have heard about it or seen it on social media. Um, it's basically a campaign that highlights some of the red flags in relationships, particularly when it comes to things like uh, love bombing, which is a term that maybe people will be familiar with where there's sort of an overshowering of gifts and things like that. So particularly on the likes of Valentine's Day, you'll see in a lot of cases that perhaps uh, your partner is giving you a lot of gifts and things like that, but there can be a lot of red flags around that. And um, one of the things they had a pop up shop on Henry Street in Dublin just for the day, and they had different examples of gifts and different. It was kind of almost more so you couldn't buy anything in the shop. It was more about awareness. But one of the things that struck Owen Kelly and I when we went in and we were filming was um, this gold locket they had up on the counter and just uh, to the naked eye a gold locket. But actually inside the locket was a GPS tracker. And apparently, according to those who have been phoning women's aid and responding to the relationship quiz, um, being tracked by your partner is something that is a feature in young relationships mm. in 2023. I was, were you, I was quite surprised by that.
2: Increasingly common as well, if you speak to people who work like women's aid do and other, you know, refuges across the country will have come up with, will have seen this, that this is something um, which is happening more and more and even in sort of young relationships that it's happening mm. even in early days relationships where you're starting to see people tracking each other on social media um, all to do with basically it is coercive control. It is, mm. you, I want you where... I can see you effectively, like, you know, there is a there's an ownership thing there and it is becoming one of the most predominant and most concerning aspects uh, around the issue of, you know, domestic abuse, domestic violence and coercive control and even, you know, the mental aspects of all of that. And it's something that is really raising alarm and it is something which you can see being a very insidious thing. Yeah. I know it actually was it was one of the features as well around, um, do you remember there was that domestic violence campaign um, during the pandemic? Mm. Um, that was one of the features of that where there was a concern because people were at home more and more and more with partners that it was a lot easier almost to control where people would go especially mm-hmm. if there was those you know the 5, the 10 and 5 kilometres, yeah. yeah. 10 kilometres yeah. or county yeah. wide limits yeah. so it's a huge thing which you know groups like you know Women's Aid have really done a great job of putting a focus on and actually yeah. getting more young people talking about
0: it I have to say I think the 2 Into You campaign it's led by Mary Hayes is really phenomenal actually I think it's been some of the best work that Women's Aid has ever done actually
1: There was the other the side finding as well that um, over 90% of people were worried about a, a relationship images. breakup in case intimate images will be shared.
0: Yeah, so ninety three percent of the respondents, Gavin, said that um, their partner had threatened to post explicit or intimate images just after an argument. That now, so that's over fifteen thousand of the respondents who took part in the survey. That's so, I think so, that's so huge. So it's not
1: even a fringe small sample. Like it's fifteen no, thousand people, and ninety three percent of them said so they didn't that that trust a... their
0: partner not to share an intimate image during the course of an argument.
1: Like. We can't deconstruct or get into armchair psychology and something like this, but I am so alarmed that so many young people would sort of be almost in a relationship under that kind of level of duress mm-hmm. where like there, there's this unspoken fear of there being some kind of consequences if you just have a falling out or a bad breakup. Like I can't imagine just what that's doing to the psychological the psychology. Well, of just, younger people if that's a, a genuine threat or a fear they have.
0: And that's something that's a very lived reality. 83% said their partners hit them once and they're afraid they will do it again while 72% said the person they're going out with always demands to look through their phone. Like it's interesting that less people demand to look at your phone than threaten to share intimate images of you.
1: Yeah. Sure. It's a it's a it's a really, really unsettling thing, but a, a really valuable survey at the same time if it is a, a valuable one. I hadn't realised the sample size was so big either, so that's a, a genuine concern. Mm. Um among the other genuine concerns that have been flagged this week is the prospect of China snooping in on all of us. Now, I I kind of find this slightly hard to fathom uh, given so many politicians are on TikTok already. But first of all, before we have a discussion on all this, uh, let's hear from Liam Herrick from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. He has been raising some concerns around uh, Chinese manufactured CCTV cameras in Leinster House. And I put it to him when I was talking to him, surely they have more to be worrying about than little old Ireland.
2: Well, I mean, Ireland is a significant player in the international technology industry. Ireland is a member of the European Union. We're a wealthy and prosperous country. So I think we do need to take our national security seriously. We also need to take our human rights record uh, seriously. We are proud of our human rights record internationally. But if we are complicit with human rights violations in other countries, that is an ethical and political question for this state. Gav, although I've been off, I've been following the odd bit of thing on Twitter, and I saw you inadvertently being in- involved earlier on this week. Yeah. Uh, when Patrick Oslo the Green uh, TD, yes. was who's not on TikTok, not on TikTok First for the record. On Twitter though, and shared his um, a-, a photo of you interviewing him about this very issue. Something he said that various constituents of his uh, had raised this issue. It. He was
1: canvassing in Rialto, and people were apparently when they knocked on the door saying, "Well, you know, what's on your mind?" The answer a allegedly. Lot
0: you've a, <laughs> lot people, a lot of <laughs> a lot people have been this. asking. <laughs> a lot of people. are saying a this. A lot no, of people are saying. I've had a lot
1: of DMs about this. Yeah. One. <laughs> so so I've so many messages from people who've been asking. No, they weren't. Um, I look. I, I'm not going to speak for the constituents of Dublin South Central and the good residents of Rialto and whether this genuinely is a concern from them. I I doubt it is something which has exercised the minds of too many voters. Uh, in too many areas but nonetheless it, it's exercising a lot of minds and of course this comes um at the same time as there's been concern around um the the, the balloons. weather balloons uh if they are in fact weather balloons uh was any they shot. is it three four or four down.
2: that have been shot it's down four, four down one was the initial one that one on screen there <laughs> um which was uh shot down uh by a fighter jet which did seem to be they have almost certainty that this was a Chinese surveillance balloon. Now, what's interesting over the last couple of days is that they have shot down three more, uh, one over Canada, a couple more around northern United States, is that they don't know what the other ones really are. Like they were, out of abundance of caution, were shooting down something mm. um, above our country uh, in the United States, that is. Um, and I just find that very strange because obviously a lot of people started to go straight to this is aliens, uh, which... yeah not so the White House had to quit and say no it's not alien it's very
1: low tech for someone who would have to come from another galaxy yeah Yeah.
2: and and then just get shot down with the first thing they come across (laughs) Um, they have the technology to get all the way here but cannot avoid uh, an, an outside winder missile but there are tens of thousands of weather balloons which are sent up so there's actually a chance that someone's really beloved pet science project has been shot down for the US military there. Would that
0: person not have come forward by now though and been like, here, listen, saws, yeah. saw's about you know, the balloons, balloons If it was, if it was
3: a
1: fair for the RDS bubble. science blast uh, in a couple of weeks' time, then it got all going to be very disappointed.
0: What's the crack with the CCTV cameras in Leinster House? So
1: the explanation that's been given by the Leinster House authorities is that the cameras are installed or are procured by the OPW. So the OCTAS itself doesn't deal with the nitty gritty. The facilities are managed by the Office of Public Works and they take care of all of that other stuff. Mm. Now, somebody was pointing out that there is a difference between or even if it's Chinese manufactured hardware, that it's actually more important is the software that's actually running on the camera. So, if the software was something that was engineered by any company other than one linked to China, there isn't as much reason to be concerned. But nonetheless, there is this allegation now that because if it's Chinese software as well as hardware, they have this situation where the Chinese government would have at least the prospect of tapping into or accessing continual live feeds. From all these cameras, and
2: they have been blocked in other countries, other countries, and other parliaments, and sensitive sites have actually yeah. removed cameras, including in the European
1: these. Parliament. Yeah. So that there is the, it's it's not totally without foundation, or at least the, it's not totally without consistency. Whether there is actually any factual information, I, I've been asking people all week if they've ever found evidence of it, and it's never shown up. Did you see the Chinese embassy's
2: response to this? I did. Yes. The Chinese embassy tweeted out in response to the story, those who made up this incredible conspiracy theory are kindly invited to invent another one, e.g. Irish-made whiskey, meat and milk are reporting back to Ireland and pose massive national security risks to China. One euro reward offered, no limits. So basically just saying that this is a complete conspiracy theory, that's obviously what the Chinese government would say in this situation. Mm. But generally, it's a, it's a, it, it does a t- there's a touch of the red scare about this, the- but there is obviously a, a huge Western concern now about China and where it's... Anything yeah,
1: like. and the fact that it, it's a private company that's linked to the Chinese government, it's not just that it's a Chinese firm, that it's one, I think, or their sole shareholder yes. is, is the Chinese government. So it's effectively a state actor. So if you had the Irish government, if you had any other hostile government or a government that you didn't necessarily choose or like or trust uh, manufacturing all the stuff that's used for your security... In fairness, you wouldn't be wild about the prospect.
0: Gav, what's the deal with golden visas?
1: Golden visas? What is the golden visa? No more. Golden visas uh, are are no more is what they are. Uh, They are visas which were um, created by the Irish government around 10 years ago. Um, the prospect being that in the midst of the financial crash that we just needed investment into the country.
0: And so, they were for everyone from all countries.
1: So from, from pretty much from all countries that if you were uh, prepared to commit to spending a certain amount of money in the country that we would sort out residency you'd have a visa to do it. And it also has been now linked to China in that pretty much 95% of the applicants uh, last year were all mm-hmm. coming from China and this has led to some security concerns which has led the government now to scrap the programme as and from midnight tonight. So if you're listening to this in the audio version too late for your visa, already gone. Mm-hmm. And again, largely because of some unspoken fears
2: about so China. Wait
0: now, 95% are from China, so no one else really wanted to come here and spend their money. The,
2: was like was, was spent. the figure I just because I was only read this earlier It's like thirteen thousand applications last year, mm. and all but a hundred and something were from outside.
1: something like that. Yeah, effectively. It's so that. it's it's kind of become dominated by one country, which yeah. has led to some other concerns. Um, but long story short, anyway, we should probably stop talking because now that the Kerry Gold conspiracy has been uncovered, where we're using our whiskey to tap into everyone else's digestive functions.
2: They're onto us. They're onto yeah. <laughs>
1: us. Uh, <laughs> don't know what you're talking about. Sorry. Okay. Um. Right. We better wrap up. Um. Richard, good to see you back again. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Zara, good to see you back. Thank, yes, thank you, you. Uh, thank you to Maxine to uh, Ross to Gareth to everyone else in the gallery and also before, the, before we forget thank you to Lisa McNally from Sky who was also really helpful in oh, yes, uh, helping us you. get in exactly. touch with um, Alice Crawford also as well. before we go we've been nominated for an award we have been nominated for an award <laughs> um, go <laughs> go vote for us in the gossies he says looking in the barrel of the camera very very seriously no please do and we're very grateful to be uh, nominated for that
0: that's a great there's loads of good great, company great there. category it
1: could be good at, good all night a like a yeah. lot of
0: great co- podcasts in my category
1: um, thank you very much for watching and listening and thank you for tuning in and we will see you again very soon. Bye.
0: Bye -bye, everybody.